Fantastic. Well, we are in Ezra chapter 7 today, 7 and 8. So do get that open in front of you. It is on page 478 if you've got one of these Bibles. We've got a big chunk today. Um, That's been the theme a lot of these last couple of weeks. We're reading through Ezra in big chunks um, because there's a lot that we can learn by understanding these stories in their entirety. Um, But here's my question for us as we start. Why didn't Ezra finish last week? Why did the book of Ezra not end at the end of chapter 6? Okay. Now, if you're wondering where this question is coming from, let me give you the context. If you've been here the whole time, you'll remember all of this. If not, this might be a helpful overview. We started by seeing Ezra talking about God's people in exile, scattered, spread out throughout the lands of Persia. And in the start of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 1, God decreed through the king of Cyrus that he is going to gather God's people together again to rebuild the temple and restore them into relationship with him. Okay, rebuild the temple and restore them into relationship with him. And then we went through and we saw, we met in Ezra chapter 2, all of these people that traveled back to Israel. We then saw in chapter 3 the foundations being laid, but not before they sacrificed to the Lord, so their relationship was restored. Chapter 4, there was a bunch of opposition now and in the future, and we saw this timeline of that. And then Ezra chapter 5 and 6, we see the completion of the temple and the celebration of Passover. The temple is rebuilt, and God's people are celebrating once again the relationship with God restored by looking at Passover. So why doesn't it end there? If this is about rebuilding the temple and God restoring his relationship with his people, why didn't it stop there? Well, we're going to see the answer in Ezra chapter 7 and 8. And that answer, excitingly for all of us, is that God's people need the law. God's people need the law. So we're going to read through these two chapters, but we're going to start by just looking at verses 1 to 10. And to give you a little bit of a spoiler, 1 to 10 is like a summary of the whole of these two chapters. So I'll spend most of my time in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. So even in about 20 minutes' time, I'm still in like chapter 10, and you're thinking, gosh, it's hot, and he's got a chapter and a half still to go. That's okay. We're going to go through the, detail, the summary in detail, then we'll fly through the rest of it to understand what it's saying. So why didn't it end at chapter 6? Because God's people need the law. Starting Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, after everything we've just talked about. During the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalem, the son of Zadok, the son of Achitub, the son of Zadok, oh, now I've said that again, uh, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zehariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra, came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. 
Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of God and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So this is the summary of these two chapters. If you didn't get it, this is about Ezra taking the law and teaching it to Israel. We see that right at the end there in verse 10. Because God's people need the law. Ezra takes it to them. But there's another verse in there that I really want us to focus on. Because this isn't just the work of Ezra. Verse 9, the gracious hand of his God was on him. The gracious hand of his God was on him. So what we're going to see today is that God's people need the law. Ezra's the man to bring it, but it's only under the gracious hand of God that he can bring it to them. So God's people need the law. I wonder how I'm going to get you excited by this, right? I think we have, sorry, I've, I've gone right ahead in the talk. If we go right back to God's people need the law now, I've given the kind of pathway, that's where we're going. You can see I'm not tricking you. Um, so I wonder how I'm going to get you excited about the law, right? I think, I think we have quite a, a bland view of the law in 21st century London. I think at best we think it's something that's necessary for our protection, for our security, something that means that bad guys don't get away with bad things. Um, at, its, at its worst, it's something that's used by people in power to dictate their will and to suppress people. Um, but most of the time, it's like basically quite boring and it's about keeping some rules, right? No offense to the lawyers in the room. Um, but I, I think that's basically how we think of the law. Right? And I, I want to I wanna shake that up a bit today, okay? Because God's people need the law. And the Bible tells us it is so, so much bigger and so, so much more beautiful than that earthly view of the law. God's law is big and beautiful. I've been spending some time this week in Psalm 119. Now, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Um, so I didn't read it all, but can I recommend that this week, as we go away from this, you spend some time reflecting on Psalm 119? Because what we will see in Psalm 119 is that the law of God is so much more than some rules. It's so much more than some rules. The law of God is God's word. It's how he speaks to us. It's how he reveals himself to us. By looking at the law of God, we can see God in his perfection, in his perfect holiness, completely unadulterated in his beauty and purity. It's God's word. It's also God's command. It convicts us of sin. When we look at the law, we see God's beauty, but we also see our own imperfection, because it shows us how far we are from his perfect beauty. It shows us how little that we have to offer to him. And it makes it clear what he wants from us. 
It's his will. It shows us his desire for the world, his decree for the world. It shows us his patterns and pathways, the way that he has restored, restored opportunity for us to be in relationship with him. And it reveals God's grace to us. The law is a gracious gift, a source of life where there is death. You see, the law is so much bigger than this, this neutral thing that locks up bad guys. The law is God's word. It's his command. It's his will. It's his grace. And I'll read through Psalm 119. Here are some of the things it says. The law is more precious than gold. It is sweeter than honey. It's like light in darkness. It makes the foolish wise. It straightens our paths. It gives life to those who are deaf, and it helps us see the grace of God. That's the law. That is what we're talking about here. So when Ezra, in, chapter 10, in verse 10 here, commits himself to teaching the decrees and the laws of God to Israel, that's what he's taking to them. It is life. This isn't just rules. I think the, the picture to illustrate this is like, imagine you're in a coal mine. I imagine, I've never been down a coal mine, but I imagine it's pretty dusty, it's pretty dark, pretty black. There's probably, probably not lots going on down there that's, that's exciting. Imagine you're in a coal mine, and then you see a diamond glistening. The Bible tells us that the law of God makes God's people like a diamond in a coal mine, radiant in their beauty, pure, perfect, standing out among a pitch black mess. And what do you do if you're a miner in a coal mine and you see a diamond? You move towards it, right? You go towards it. And, and that's what people should do. When they see God's people, they see them as beautiful and radiant. And the law should make us attractive to the world. The law is big and the law is beautiful. And it makes God's people like a diamond in a coal mine. God's people need the law. God's people need the law. And Israel here in Ezra chapter 7 and 8 need the law. Flick over the page to the start of chapter 9. This is the context that Ezra is going to. Chapter 9 verse 1. The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, had not kept themselves separate from the neighboring people and their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and so on. God's people had just become like other bits of coal. They might have been diamonds, and I don't know if a diamond can become coal, but it's become dusty, it's become invisible because they're just exactly the same as everyone around them. They need the law. They need to be beautiful and radiant again. So God's people need the law. And Ezra is the man to bring it. Ezra is the man to bring it. Um, verses 1 to 6 here uh, read a little bit like Ezra's CV. Not the kind of CV that you and I would write. But it's the kind of CV um, for a guy that wants to bring the law to Israel. And, and to understand why this is an impressive CV, we need to think back to when God first brought the law to Israel. Okay, so we're going to do a bit of history here. When God first brought the law to Israel, the Israelites were in Egypt, and they were in slavery. 
And God rescued them from slavery. And then they were in the desert, and they were wandering, and they set up the tabernacle. So the Israelites were rescued. They gathered. They set up the tabernacle so they could dwell with God. And then God brought them the law through two people, two brothers, Moses and Aaron. Aaron was the chief priest. He had a priestly role. He was the one who presented God's people to God. He was the mediator between God's people and God. That's Aaron. Moses was the prophet, the teacher. God gave God's, his law to Moses and he spoke it to Israel. So you have these two roles. You've got a teacher who speaks and then a, a, prof, a priest who represents. Moses and Aaron. Okay, now look again at, at Ezra's CV. After these things, Ezra, which Ezra you ask? Well, Ezra, son of blah, 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 blah. Down to verse 5, son of Aaron, the chief priest, well-versed in the law of Moses, right? So when God brings the law, when he brought the law first time, he brought it through Aaron and Moses. And here, God's people need the law. And there's this guy called Ezra who is of the line of Aaron and well-schooled in the law of Moses. Do you see? He's the man to bring the law to Israel. Jesus Sorry, not Jesus. Jesus is the man we need. But Ezra, <laughs> that was a real spoiler. We can go home now. That's where it ends, by the way. Um, no, Ezra is just the man that Israel need at this point. And if you're thinking that's too good to be true, that's too kind of coincidental, right? Okay, so Moses and Aaron there, and there's Moses and Aaron here. Yeah, sure, whatever, Johnny, you're just drawing a link. This is how God works, right? God, we talked about God's providence throughout this book of Ezra, there's this, this golden thread of God's providence going from eternity past to eternity future, where God is perfectly in control, generation to generation, setting things in motion so that through the actions of people on earth, his will comes to be. And here we see God's providence through the line from Sariah to Aaron, bringing Ezra to Israel to bring them the law. This is God's providence. And if Ezra, if you're in any doubt that it's God's providence, Ezra keeps giving us time and time again in this verse, and we'll read it throughout the rest. This is all the work of God's gracious hand. We saw it twice in that first section. Um, the gracious hand of God was on him, so the king granted him everything in verse 6. And then in verse 9, God's gracious hand of God was on him as he went to Israel. So this is all happening under the gracious hand of God. So there we go. So that's, that's setting up what we're going to see here. So God's people need the law. Ezra is the man to bring it. And this is all happening under the gracious hand of God. And then through the rest of this section, from 7 verse 11 all the way through to the end of chapter 8, we see this journey from Babylon, where Ezra was, through to Israel. And we see different ways that the gracious hand of God guides Ezra and the Israelites back so that he can take the law to Israel. And it starts with another king in the palm of his hand. I'm going to read from verse 11. Verse 11. 
This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord of Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now, I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hands. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and the gold that the king and his advisor has freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all of the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and the priests of the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold, in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for the worship in the temple of your God, and anything else, and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now, I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all of the treasures of the trans-Euphrates are to provide provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, Let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king of his sons? You will also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God which you possess, Appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord of God was on me. I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Okay, another long chunk. Under the gracious hand of God, another king is in the palm of God's hand. We've seen a load of kings so far in the book of Ezra. In chapter 1, we met King Cyrus, and he decreed that God's people should gather in Jerusalem and build the temple. Last week in chapter 6, we met Darius, who gave permission for the temple to be built and to be finished. And here we meet Artaxerxes, who interestingly comes after Xerxes. I thought that was quite handy. But we meet Artaxerxes, who says to Ezra, you need to go to Jerusalem Verse um, 14, you need to go to Jerusalem and ask about the law of God. See what's going on there and see if they're obeying the law of God. Jerusalem saying, uh, Ezra, 
Artaxerxes is saying, go to Jerusalem and check out whether they're obeying the law of God. And look at this, verse 23. Astonishing. This is the king of Persia. Okay, chapter 7, verse 23. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence. So this king is saying to Ezra, go there, have a look, and see whether they're obeying the law. And then you're a teacher of the law. He says things like, the law is in your hand. You know it better than anyone. You're a teacher of the law. Go and make sure that whatever God has prescribed, let it be done. Let God's law be done. God's will be done. I just wonder if this is a foreshadow to the Lord's Prayer. We see this king, a powerful earthly king, saying, your will be done, Lord, on earth here. God's will be done. So under the gracious of God, this king submits to God's will, and he provides absolutely everything that Ezra and the Israelites need. Did you see it? He's a provider. He gives everything that they need. He gives them silver and gold. He tells them to go and buy lambs and bulls and drink and grain. And then he says, if there's anything else you don't need, get it from the royal treasury. Like, get into the tax box, you know. Get unlocked the tax box. There's a big safe there. Go and get some gold and spend it on some grain to do some proper sacrifices. That's what he's saying. You've got free access to the state's resources to make sure that God's will is obeyed. This isn't just the work of a man. We can't think that the law is imposed by Ezra. We can't think that the law is imposed by any teacher. This is the work of God. Because King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, his heart was in the hand of God. Ezra says that in verse 27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart? Because the hand of the Lord was on me. Ezra makes us see that this is the work of God to transform the king's heart, to submit to God's will, and to give them everything they need on their journey to Jerusalem to make sure that the people have the law. So under the hand of God, he has another king in the palm of his hand. All right, we're going to get back into the text, into chapter 8, because next he raises up some leaders. So right at the end of chapter 7, you see Ezra takes confidence, right? He takes confidence from the fact that God has provided for him, that this king has given him favor. And he says, because the hand of the Lord God was on me, I took courage and I gathered up leaders from Israel to go up with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. These are the family heads and those registered those registered with them who came up with me, that's Ezra, from Babylon to the reign, during the reign of Artaxerxes. The descendants of Phineas, Gershom, of the descendants of Ither, Daniel, of the descendants of David, Hattush, of the descendants of Shechaniah, of the descendants of Parosh, Zechariah, and with him were registered 150 men. Of the descendants of Pahath-Moab, Elianohoi, son of Zechariah, and with him 200 men. Of the descendants of Zatu, Shelkiel, son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the descendants of Aden, Ebed, son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the descendants of Elam, Jeshahiah, and, of, and son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. 
Of the descendants of Shephatiah, Zebediah, son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the descendants of Joab, Obadiah, son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the descendants of Bani, Shelomith, son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the descendants of Bebai, Zechariah, son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the descendants of Azgad, Johanan, son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the descendants of Adonikam, the last ones whose names were Eliphalet, Jeuel, and Shemariah, and with them 60 men. And of the descendants of Bigvi, Uthai and Zakur, and with them 70 men. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards the Ahava, and we camped there for three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eliezer, Eriel, Shemahiah, Elnathan, Jareb, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Joarib and Elnathan, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to go to Ido, the leader of Cassiphiah. I told them what to say to Ido and his fellow Levites, the temple servants in Cassiphiah, so that they might be so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man, from the descendants of Mahli, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 in all, and Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah, from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 men in all. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David, the, David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. Okay, it's another big chunk. It's hot in here. Let's, get, let's try and get ourselves up for this. So under the gracious hand of God, we've seen that another king is in the palm of his hand. And here we see leaders being raised up to take the law to Israel. And we see a long list of people. And part of the reason why Ezra lists these out, we've seen this before. We saw this in Ezra chapter 2. Part of the reason Ezra lists these out is because these are people counted by God, loved by him. And another part of the reason why he lists these out is because he wants to communicate that the leadership of God is in the palm of God's hand. Because historically, prior to this, the Levites were the ones that would bring the law. Okay, we've seen that. We've seen that earlier in this book. The book of Leviticus is written to bring the law of God to God's people. And yet, if you look at that long list of people, Ezra gets them all there in verse 15. He then said, when I chucked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. Right, so we've got all these people. They've gone to Israel to take the law. And then they get there. They get to this place, the Ahava Canal. And then they say, well, where are the Levites? Who are the people that are going to start by teaching the law? And they look around and there's no one there. In his strength, in Ezra's strength, he can't just find the guy who already knows it and get them to teach the law. But by the gracious hand of our God, in verse 18, they brought us Mahali, um, Sherebiah, a capable man who was able to lead the people. So God not only has the kings in the palm of his hand, but he raises up leaders to teach Israel. I found it quite interesting that three out of 11 of those people were called El Nathan. You don't meet loads of El Nathans these days. Um, maybe it's one of those extinct names, a bit like Graham or Keith. 
Apparently, there hasn't been um, a single Graham registered in the UK since 1994. So, as in registered for birth in 1994. So, if you don't know Graham under the age of whatever that would be, 29, I, mean, I don't know if this is real or not. I said it on Google. People are looking skeptical. Does, who knows a Graham under the age of 29? Susie does. And Izzy does. Okay, well, apologies. Fake news. But there are names that are disappearing. And once upon a time, apparently, L. Nathan was a really, really popular name. Um, I don't, does anyone know an L. Nathan? This is a fun game. Yes, and I used to know an L. Nathan. There you go, it's not totally dead. Okay, less about the, uh, the extinct names. Anyway, the point being, um, God raises up leaders. It's the gracious hand of God that raises people up to lead his people. If it was left to the people, the line of the Levites, the line of the teachers would have died at this point, right? So, so early on, the Levites were given the job to teach the law. And at this point in the Bible, there were none of them left. There were no Levites in the remnant. They had been cut off. But God, by his gracious hand, found someone, raised them up, and so the teaching of the law can continue. And it's important because God's people need the law. We've seen that already. So God's people need the law. And finally, we're going to read the final chunk now. Um, yeah, we are getting off time. Okay, we're going to read the, read the final chunk. So carrying on from, ver from verse 21. So we've just seen that God raised up leaders, even though they hadn't turned to come back to Jerusalem. Then, verse 21, there, by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king, and his so king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road, because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this. And he answered our prayer. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, namely Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers. I wish they'd been that, I wish they'd been that succinct in all the other times, you know. Here are 12, I'll just give you the brothers. Anyway, um, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and articles that the king, his advisors, and officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of God. I weighed, them, I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, Silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 100 diatrips, the two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. I said to them, you, as well as these articles, are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are free will offerings to the Lord, the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before leading the priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and the Levites received the silver and gold and the sacred articles that had been weighed out, to take, weighed out to be taken out of the house of our God in Jerusalem. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from our enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and sacred articles into the hands of Merimoth, son of Uriah, the priest. Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, was with him. And so were the Levites, Jozebad, son of Jeshua, 
Noah Dyer, son of Binuai. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded of that time. Then the exiles, who had returned from captivity, sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and, as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people, to the house of God. It's worth saying, I, I don't think I made this point when we were talking about the raising up the Levites. So th- when they were at the Ahava Canal, there were no Levites there. They then went and found a bunch of Levites to join them on their journey to Israel. So that's why in this chunk, we have the Levites who can then go and teach the law. But what we see here is that under God's gracious hand, God protects them and he provides for them. He protects them and he provides for them. As Tom said earlier, one of the big themes of this little chunk is the protection that God offers. Look at verse 20 20 to 23. They were scared. They were scared of their journey. And so they fasted and prayed to God. And then in verse... uh, Sorry, I've lost track of it. Then in verse 31... The gracious hand of our God, the hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from our enemies and bandits along the way. They fasted and prayed for safety. They asked God. They went to God, and his gracious hand protected them on their journey. See, bringing the law to the world was not an easy thing for Ezra. They faced opposition. They faced enemies. There were bandits trying to steal from them. You see how much like gold and silver and stuff. And earlier, we we told about the hundred baths of olive oil that they had with them. Who wouldn't want to steal a hundred bars of olive oil from these guys? You've got bandits trying to steal from them. You've got enemies trying to stop them on their way. And they prayed, and God provided protection by his gracious hand. And finally, everything was accounted for. Verse 34. By the gracious hand of God, he had provided absolutely everything they needed for their journey. He had provided absolutely everything they needed for their journey through the king, through the free will offerings, and through the leaders carrying all these things. So this is what we've seen in Ezra chapter 7 and 8. God's people need the law. Ezra is the man to bring it. But it's all under the gracious hand of God who, through the will of the king, provides for them, protects them, and raises up leaders. So this is God's work, not the work of Ezra. But what what does this mean to us today, right? So we've got a sense of this picture of Ezra chapter 7 and 8. It's really important that the law gets taken to Israel and God makes it happen. But what does this mean for us? Well, we need the law, right? God's people need the law. And we, as God's people, need the law. But does that mean that we open the book of Leviticus and we look at those commands about mildew and shellfish and like the size that rooms have to be and all of that kind of thing? And does, does it mean that we get obsessed about those things and then start to build ourselves up around this law that we see in the Bible and start to behave in a really, really strict way around that? No, it doesn't. Because the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5 says, I did not come 
to remove the law, but to fulfill it. And we saw earlier that the law is the word, the command, the will, and the grace of God. Jesus is the word of God, the one that reveals God perfectly to us. When we look at him, we see God in all his glorious perfection. So yes, when the law, the old law, the Old Testament law, shows us the perfection of God by how perfect things have to be to enter his presence, we look at Jesus and we see the perfect son of God who could enter God's presence. He is the word of God, the one who reveals God to us perfectly. He is also the one who brings God's commands. I don't know what version of Jesus you have in your head, but but if we have a Jesus in our head who, who doesn't care how we behave, we've got the wrong Jesus. Jesus sets out a pattern of behavior and a series of commands that have a really high bar. If there's lust in your eyes, that is the same as adultery. If there's anger in your heart, that is the same as murder. He speaks strongly against hypocrisy. Jesus hates sin, and he speaks out against it. Jesus brings the law. He brings the commands of God. But he also shows us the will of God. In Gethsemane, the night before he died, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done to his father. And the next day, he went to the cross and he died. Because Jesus reveals to us perfectly that the will of God is that Jesus Christ might be sacrificed so that all may be free to enter relationship with him. So he's the word, he reveals the commands, he reveals the will of God, and he reveals the grace of God. He rose again to life so that we too might have the free gift of eternal life in perfect relationship with God. See, Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the law. And so when we read this passage and we see the need of God's people for the law, and we see the lengths to which God goes to make the law happen in Israel, to to go through people and kings and overcome trials on the road, and the way that God, in his providence, brings the law to Israel, we see the importance of God bringing his law to us in Jesus Christ. God, Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. God's people need the law. We need the law. We need Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law. We thank you that that means that We no longer live in slavery to the law or in slavery to sin, but we live in freedom to obey Christ, to worship him. Lord, we pray that that we would love your law, that we would love Jesus, that we would love all of your words, that we would love your scripture. Because we need it, Lord. We need it to become beautiful. We need it to become like a diamond in a coal mine. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.